Let me pray as we come to God's word. Father, we pray that you would do your work in us today. For those of us who need heart surgery, we pray that you would do it. For those of us who need a surgical strike, we pray that you would blow us out of the water and teach us not to rely on ourselves but on you. Amen. Well, a minister was walking down the road and uh, he came across a uh, gang of uh, 10 to 12-year-old boys. That's not a pleasant thing in itself, but uh, uh, they were there. There's about a dozen of them and they were fighting over a dog. Uh, and uh, he thought, this is a bit uh, unkind to the dog. Uh, I better go and intervene, uh, even though he didn't want to, and see what, what's going on. So he walked over and he asked, what's going on here, boys? And one of them said, well, this dog's a neighbourhood stray and uh, it's been around for some time and all of us want to take the dog home and we're fighting over it. Uh, so we've decided that whichever one of us can tell the biggest lie, we'll get to keep the dog. Uh, and the, I mean, thought, that's outrageous. He said, that, yeah, that's terrible. You, you shouldn't be having a contest telling lies. And then he launched into a 10-minute sermon on the evils of lying. He says, don't you know that it's a sin to lie? And he ended with, when I was your age, I never lied. Well, there was dead silence for about a minute. And then uh, just as the, the minister thought he was getting through to these boys, the littlest one picks up the dog and says, Sir, you have the dog. <laughs> it's yours. Our passage today uh, deals with the subject of religious hypocrisy. And while we might all have a good laugh at jokes like that, uh, religious hypocrisy really is no laughing matter at all. Uh, you might have suffered at the hands of someone like that, uh, and that's certainly no fun. But the real reason that it's no laughing matter is because of the profound danger that it puts us in with God. Uh, the danger caused by thinking our security with him is bound up by the trappings of religion, by how much we know, by the things we do, by our piety. And today's passage really is a red-hot go at that kind of misleading religious confidence that thinks, you know, I'm all right with God come judgment day because I've got my religion all worked out. As if the depth of our religious knowledge or our pious acts of devotion would be any refuge against the furious anger of God. Now, for those who just joined us today or recently, we've been working through the New Testament letter uh, to the Romans. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that was at the heart of the known world, the centre of the empire uh, in Rome, the church there. And it was concerned with the heart of the matter, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And that's how he opens the letter, by reminding them what it is. And then he says in verse uh, 16, 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so no matter who you are, you need saving and you need the power of God in your life to do that. You need the mercy of God. And the mercy of God's not weak, it is powerful and strong. And then he sets out to prove that in what is really one long section that runs from chapter 1 and verse 18 right through to chapter 3 and verse 20, where he drives towards the stunning conclusion there in 3, 19 and 20 that every mouth, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God because all mankind, no matter how great 
or how small, how learned, how dumb, how depraved, how righteous or self-righteous is guilty. Is guilty before God and they are facing his wrath in this life and in the life to come. And no matter who you are, you cannot winkle your way out of it. Well, first, we saw a couple of weeks ago, he looks at the pagan world and the terrible things that happen around us. It's kind of an argument in stages, uh, particularly the, the terrible things that, that people do to other people. Why is it that the world is so full of hate and anger and bitterness and lies and greed? What, why do families tear each other apart and, and neighbours war over the most childish of things? Well, the answer is because we as a race have refused to acknowledge God. We refuse to thank him or glorify him. Instead, we choose to worship the creation, this world, rather than the creator who gave it all. And so what God has done in his anger is he's handed us to do uh, with our lives whatever we will. He's just left us to own to us saying, well, if you couldn't care about me, I don't give a stuff about you. And what we do with ourselves when we're in charge is not pretty. And you can read the great long list there at the end of chapter 1. Just look around the world, he says, and you'll see it. And so the pagan world needs mercy. But then he turns to the moral critic and who's always, you know, tutting and and who thinks, well, lucky I'm not like that. I'm better than all them, better than everyone else. In fact, they, they take refuge in their moral standards. And Paul says to that person, well, you may well disapprove, and, and there are lots of right things to disapprove of what's happening around. And you may think that you're above it all, but if you would just take a deep, hard and honest look inside of yourself, you would see exactly the same kind of evil within you. And what's worse than that, under the red-hot light of God's judgment on Judgment Day, he is going to expose the secret of every man's heart and every woman's heart And every secret thing that you think you've kept hidden from everyone else, things you've even kept hidden from yourself, are going to be laid bare before him in judgment and there'll be no hiding what's inside then. And so just like the pagan world, the moral critic needs just as much mercy from God. But now in our section he turns to one final group. That is the ultra-religious. The ones who say, well, you know what? You do, um, no, he's saying, you, you know what, you're the ultra religious, you need the mercy of God just as much as any of those others. And he does it by turning to the most religious group of all people, his own people, the Jews. He knows from personal experience that they'll be sitting there thinking, yep, Paul, you're right, those pagans, they're scum. And those Greek converts, yeah, they think they're so much better than everyone else. <laughs> you know, as if they've got it all worked out, they think they're so good. But they're not really up to scratch, are they? But us Jews, on the other hand, we'll be safe, we'll be all right, because you know what? We've got religion. We've got God's religion. And so they seek refuge in their religion. And while it's ain't fair and square at the Jews of his day, I don't think we're going to have any trouble seeing where it applies to us as well. And, and he's not saying any of this from spot. He's not an anti-Semitic or anything. This is, this is how he thought once upon a time. He says, I know it from personal experience. This is, this is ground he knows every inch of because that was the refuge he thought he was safe in. Now, there are two principal dangers that Paul underlines that the person who is ultra-religious faces. The first is to think that we're okay because of our uh, the kind of religious truth 
that we possess. We've got all the right answers. And so that makes us safe with God. The other thing he says, oh, you know, God will have me because I know all the right things. I've got all the answers. And in Bible times, that was a great danger because the religious Jew knew that he was the inheritor, the inheritor of all of the oracles of God. And as he looked down upon the world, it was as if he was sitting on top of this great mountain, looking down at the great unwashed, illiterate masses out there who really ought to know their place. And it's at the bottom. <laughs> and Paul so insightfully describes that kind of thinking in, in verse 17 on. He says, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of all knowledge and truth. And it was true that the Jew did have all of those privileges. He's not lying about them. I mean, he says, you bear the name Jew. And anyone know what the word Jew means? Because it doesn't mean just kind of people from that race. It means something in its own language. Anyone? It's short for Judah, which is one of the tribes of Israel and who were the kind of surviving tribe at the end. And so they were the Judahites. And Judah means praised, the praised one. These are the people who God praises. Uh, and they were really proud of being called that. We're the praised ones. And they never hid the fact that they were Jewish. In fact, around 200 BC, when there was this large uh, scattering called the dispersion of the Jews to places like Egypt and Greece, as they went, they, they took on the name Jew as a surname so that everyone would know. Uh, they were proud of the name. And so if I was one of them at the time, I'd be Joe Wiltshire Jew. That would be my name. Uh, and they relied on that name. And, and they relied on the possession of the law as putting them in a special relationship with God. Not obedience to the law so much as the fact that they were the keepers and the guardians and the possessors of the law. And so they could say because of that, genuinely, we know God's will. We have it. He gave it to us. Of all the people on the earth, God spoke to us. And they considered themselves to have a far superior ethical judgment because of that, far better than all the Gentiles around, they knew intimately the ins and outs of all of God's ways. And so the religious Jew could happily pontificate on all that was wrong with the world and all that everyone else should really know and believe and do. And he did. <laughs> and the annoying thing, you know what the really irritating thing was? They were right. Most of the time. Don't you hate it when people are right and they... Because they did have the law. They were the inheritors of the, of the oracles of God. They had all of these wonderful privileges. It was God who called them the praised ones. But as wonderful as all these privileges were, they had this deluding effect because they started to think that because they possessed all of this knowledge that they were somehow okay. And though Paul's wielding the knife specifically against his own people, it's not too hard to think how we might fall into exactly the same danger. I mean, here, we're sitting in St Barnabas. We're in, we're in the good teaching church, you know, kind of thing. Part of the Sydney Diocese of the Anglican Church of Australia. Man, we know our stuff. We've got more college. Uh, um, you know, you can, you can go and, 
and read, and maybe you do, you have 25 different translations of the Bible in English and sit there and compare them all and contrast and think, oh, well, it's really saying this. And uh, some people carry big, fat, heavy Bibles around with, with eight different translations in them so they can know everything, you know, and where the preacher got that from. Uh, um, uh, you can know every single reference to predestination. Yeah, you can know what the word shalom really means in its original context and and that, that's a particular danger for us preachers, uh, right? I mean, I'm off to the Wollongong Regional Clergy Conference uh, for the first three days of this week and we'll be sitting there and most of us will be sitting there with an English Bible in one hand, I guarantee it, and a Greek Bible in the other so that we can compare and just see whether the preacher really knows his stuff. And it's easy to become an encyclopedia or a concordance of facts and be regarded as the font of all wisdom. But I tell you, it's not just preachers who face that danger, is it? There are those who pride themselves on having memorised the prayer book services. Lucky that's not at 10 o'clock. I mean, that's that's an yeah, 8 o'clock problem. <laughs> who can know all the creeds off by heart, including the Athanasian Creed. Yeah, you know, the one that's never even said at church. You've never heard of it, right? It's at the back of the prayer book. There you go. There's an extra creed we all believe, right? Uh, it's the kind of person who can dot every right theological I and cross every right theological T, who's always needling, always correcting, always has to be right. And you know what that makes them? A tedious bore. Uh, when they've just got to stick their two cents into everything, right? You know what I'm talking about. You know the kind of person. Uh, they think of themselves in exactly this kind of way, a light to the blind, a teacher of you infants out there. But far worse than just making you socially awkward, it is a very dangerous thing when it comes to God because, you know what, it's just intellectual, spiritual pride and God opposes the proud. Knowing your stuff is no refuge come judgment day. You can know all the right things about God and yet still not know him, can't you? And that kind of arrogant pride and presumption will lead you just as surely to hell as it will anyone else. And Paul goes on to show how shallow and hopeless the refuge that kind of people person thinks he really has uh, by asking some very cutting questions, the surgical questions. And I reckon that they're good surgery for us as well. You see them there in verse 21 to 23. He says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking that law? As it's written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And just in case you're wondering, the answer to all those questions is yes. Yes, they do do those things. Because the spiritually proud man or woman is always glossing over and ignoring his own sin. And those very things that he describes there, you know, the stealing and the adultery and the robbing of temples, they, they were well known amongst the religious elite of Israel. I mean, stealing, uh, in Mark 7, Jesus showed how the religious elite uh, make up religious rules so they look like they're, they're being really godly while they rip off their elderly ageing parents and say, oh, man, this money I would have given to you and you you think you deserve because you looked after us. Well, 
Actually, we've devoted it to God. You can't have it. Uh, adultery, the Talmud castigates three of its um, three most famous rabbis uh, for their immorality and adulteries. Uh, robbing temples, why do you think Jesus turned over all those tables of the money changers? Because they're just ripping everyone off. They're, they're stealing from God, they're stealing from the people. And, and even if some hadn't done those things overtly, they were all guilty of them spiritually because we're all guilty of these things spiritually. And so as they read these questions, they were guilty. They could say whatever they wanted, but they knew in their heart of hearts that they were guilty. God knows it. You know it. And you know what? So does the world. You can spot, the world can spot a religious hypocrite a mile off. And that's why he adds that bit at the end, doesn't he? God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Because they know what you're really like. And so in just a few sentences, Paul strips away the false security of very religious people who base their security before God, their refuge in having the truth. So it's not really a question of what you know. It's a question of what you do with that truth. And faced with the question, what do you do? Even the most pious and religious person needs mercy, just like the rest of the world, like everyone else. We all need mercy. Well, that's the first danger dealt with. Uh, But there's a second danger that the religious Jew faced and which we will face too. And that's the danger of thinking you're safe with God because of your religious affiliation uh, and your your religious practice. I mean, that was a danger that the religious Jew was particularly susceptible to because of the rite of circumcision. Uh, If you're not familiar with circumcision, it's a little surgery that's... Uh, done downstairs. Uh, it was one of the distinctive features of Judaism that all all the men were circumcised. They'd have the, the foreskin of their penis removed uh, as a religious devotion to God. Uh, it's done in a special religious ceremony by a priest and it was the physical mark on your body that you belonged. I mean, you can't Undo that. It's like having the tattoo, although you can have laser removal surgery for a tattoo. This is kind of more permanent even than that. The mark that you really belonged, that you were one of God's people. You just had to drop your dax to prove it. But anyway, here's something I read during the week. Um, I quote, Many of the Jews actually thought that circumcision brought salvation. The rabbi Menachem, in his commentary on the book of Moses, said, Our rabbis have said, No circumcised man will see hell. Another rabbi said, circumcision saves from hell. And in the Midrash, Telem, who's another rabbi, says, God swore to Abraham that no one who is circumcised should be sent to hell. And so they believed on the basis of their religious affiliation that the sign of that religious affiliation, circumcision, that they were going to make it. Now, the rite of circumcision really was a great and significant thing. It was... It was, it was given to Abraham after he trusted God and God had declared him innocent and righteous and forgiven. And it was given him as a, as a public demonstration or testimony of his commitment to God. And you've really got to be committed to go through that as a grown man. Uh, just read what happened in Genesis 34 when a whole village of men tried to have it done at once. They rolled around the ground paying for three days and all got murdered. But anyway... Uh, but after Abraham, it was required in the Jewish law that all Jews uphold it. It served as a physical reminder of the commitment that the person was supposed to have to God. 
I guess in much the same way that, that a wedding ring is a physical and outward sign of the covenant of marriage, a sign to all the world that you are taken. But look at what Paul says here. It's astonishing. Verse 25. Circumcision has value, and I'm going to add the word only, only if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, that is an astonishing thing to say to the religious Jew. They would be horrified at that thought. To accuse or to say to another Jew that you are uncircumcised is almost the worst insult you could possibly say. But then he takes it further and adds insult to injury in the next sentence, verse 26. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, the the pagans out there, if they kind of do the right things, yet will they not be regarded as if they were circumcised? As if they were insiders? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are in fact the lawbreaker. I mean, if it was bad enough to call the Jew uncircumcised, that is just unthinkable. That the unwashed, the pagan, the uncircumcised outsider could possibly stand in judgment over the circumcised Jew that they could be regarded as circumcised when they're not. That's outrageous. Now, I don't think Paul believes at all that any Gentile does perfectly keep the law. I mean, that's been part of the argument already. But he presents it as a hypothetical statement and he says, hypothetically, that person could stand in judgment on you. But the point is that the sign of commitment means absolutely nothing if you're not living it out. Now, in applying that to ourselves, we, all we have to do is substitute for the word circumcision in the text here some other words like church membership, baptism, communion, confirmation, or heaven forbid, Anglican. I mean, there are those of us who take refuge in those very things and who think that they'll be safe in the judgment because they bear those marks of belonging. I can think of those who would be appalled to say that someone who was baptised and confirmed and who took communion from time to time was not a Christian. And indeed, many people today are shattered by the idea that on Judgment Day, their baptism will count for nothing. Even baptism as an adult in a Baptist church will count for nothing. What matters is whether I've been truly washed by the blood of Christ, as we'll see next week. To be washed by water means absolutely nothing. To receive the bread and wine from the Lord's table means absolutely nothing in terms of who's in and who's out of heaven, according to this theology. Unless I've been nourished by the life of Christ and that life is seen in me. Because it's not the sign that matters in the end, it's the reality that's signified that matters. The sign's one thing, but the reality is something else. I mean, come back to this idea of the wedding ring. You can wear a wedding ring, can't you? And yet not be married. Because you just slip it on. In fact, I know people who do it. I know women who do it, who uh, want to feel some kind of protection against getting hit on when they go to the bar. 
Um, uh, lots of, so I don't know if lots, I've heard uh, that lots of unmarried men do it when they go to the bar because it makes them look safe and they can prey on unsuspecting women and pick them up because they're good to talk to because they're taken. And so that's horrible. But even worse than that are those who do have a wedding ring legitimately. They got it on their wedding day. They said the vows. But by their adultery, by their pornography, they're saying something very different about the reality than what the sign says. It's a betrayal of the reality. It shows it's all a sham, it's a lie. See, in the end, the sign means absolutely nothing. Even if when you got the sign done, it was done with sincerity, the utmost sincerity, because it is not the sign that matters at all, but the reality that the sign points to. Someone came up to me after 8 o'clock and said, oh, don't forget the nuns, because they all wear the wedding ring and lots of them don't have a personal faith in Jesus Christ because they look like they're taken by him, but they're not. You must say that at 10 o'clock. <laughs> so I have. <laughs> it's so easy to be fooled by religious affiliation or to imagine that because of the name that we have or the group that we belong to, because we've gone through the rituals of belonging, that we must really be true believers. And that is a great danger. And again, it's one that will lead us straight to hell. See, Paul takes us to the very heart of the matter in the last couple of sentences of the chapter. What's the heart of the matter? Verse 28. A person is not a Jew. They are not praised who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. Now a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from man, that person's praise really is from God. Now it's a bit of a strange concept, isn't it? You know, uh, circumcision of the heart. But what he's saying is the circumcision that anyone needs to be right with God has got nothing to do with your private parts. What you need, what we all desperately need is for our hearts to be cut. A more modern way of thinking about it, as we were talking a couple of weeks ago, is that we need open heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. Not the physical type, but spiritual open heart surgery. It doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. It doesn't matter what church you've been part of or what you belong to now. It doesn't matter you know, where you stood, whether you've been in the pagan world and, and rejected God in the past. It doesn't matter if you're you know, the moralist. It doesn't matter if you're the religious. We, we need open heart surgery. And we all need it. And that heart transplant can only be given to you. It's a gift. It's a gift. And it doesn't come from the hands of men. It comes from the hands of God. And it comes in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why it's the power of God for the salvation of anyone who'll believe it, whether Jew, whether Gentile. Because it takes dead hearts and it removes them from us and it puts a completely new heart, Jesus' heart, inside us. And it comes by the cross of Jesus Christ, which we'll get to next week when we finally get a bit of good news. <laughs> but let me finish off by asking, what are you basing your confidence before God on? 
When you stand there before him, what are you really going to think is going to get you in? I mean, you might know the old evangelism explosion questions, you know, and, and what the right answer is, but knowledge won't save you. If you would put I in front of anything, you're out. What are you putting your confidence before God? What are you basing it on? I mean, I believe there are people here today who if I start to quote a verse, will be able to finish that verse for me. They have a better knowledge of the Bible than I do, and yet they're not saved. And I say that because I've met people, seen people who everyone thought had their relationship with God all sorted out because they knew their stuff and they were deeply involved in church, but then they became Christians one day. We've got a church warden, uh, sorry, someone who was a church warden elsewhere who that happened to at our church. Even someone I went through Bible college with who's a minister. One day, a couple of years out from Bible college, he was paid, running the church, rang me up, said, Joe, I've got to come over, I've got to talk about something right away. I'm like, okay. Don't know what's happened, something bad's happened. Uh, he turned up, what's the matter? He said, I just read something in the Bible today. Is this right that it that it's only by God's grace that we're saved? I just read that today. That means I can't save myself. I need Jesus. I said, you know what, mate? I think you become a Christian today. <laughs> More college. <laughs> Working in the diocese for a couple of years. Preaching erudite sermons. It's all of grace. And so I think it's very possible that there are those here who think that because of their knowledge that they're in and because of their affiliation that they're in, but they're lost. And in order to come to Christ, it's going to take a great deal of humility to admit that to him. What are you basing your confidence before God on? If it is anything other than Jesus Christ, then it is a false refuge and it will not protect you. It will not save you. This is God's word. It's surgical. It's a surgical strike. It's meant to pierce our hearts. And and if God has spoken to you today and he's revealed the condition of your heart, you've got to sort it out with him. You've got to sort it out with him. And I'd be only too happy to sit down with you later in the week because I'm away for three days, but Thursday, Friday, next week, do it as quick as possible. Sort it out with him. You need Jesus. Let me pray. Our Father, what a wonderful thing it is to have such a wonderful instrument of surgery available to us. We want to pray for those who realise that they're not in the household of faith, although they appear perfectly orthodox, that you would bring them to their knees in humility. We pray that they might be marvellously born again, that they might have the word of God, which they know so well, suddenly come alive to them. Father, we pray for all of us that you would protect us from this religious hypocrisy and that spiritual pride that thinks that because we We know the right stuff, 
because we're in the right kind of church, because we've had the right kind of marks, that we must be okay with you. It's not true. Help us to rely only on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that that is the power of God to save anyone who will believe it. Thank you that you're doing that work in our lives. Amen.